Welcome back to Conversations of the Leaky Cauldron, 007, chapters 26 through 30 of Harry Potter and the Goblet of Fire. And back with me, as usual, uh, sharing a drink are uh, Miss Sarah Miller and Mr. Wes Lachance. Welcome back, Sarah. Welcome back, Wes. Hey, how's it going? It's going Greetings, well. y'all. Greetings, greetings, and with the second person uh, plural pronoun of my people, y'all, the only, um, <laughs> the only uh, single word plural form of you in the English language, you know, you guys, you, you, you folks, you people, all of that, uh, two words, y'all though, it's all encompassing, and so Wes, on the pre-show, and as usually happens, we, we sometimes hit our best balls to use a tennis metaphor, or, you know, share our best thoughts right before we get on the air. But um, you, you were wondering about the dark mark and whether Sirius knew about the dark mark. Could you, could you say a couple words about why that stood out to you? Because that was like Sarah has sometimes said, she says, I have my own thoughts, but I never think the same thoughts as you. I, that is not, that's not something that I thought of or noticed really at all to even ask a question about. Yeah, well, it threw me off a little bit because I assumed that Sirius, since he does know so much from being in Azkaban around these uh, evil wizards and maybe a few other people like him who were wrongfully accused, but mostly evil wizards are in there. And so I, I would have thought <laughs> that he would have caught sight of or overheard or somehow seen or known something about the Dark Mark being not just like, something in the sky, but also something on uh, people's bodies, because uh, they, they ask him, you know, uh, what was going on when, when Karkaroff was showing Snape his forearm, like what's going on there, and, and Sirius is completely bewildered. And so as a reader who's, who's read these before, but not in a long time, I was like not remembering whether we were supposed to know about the dark mark yet, but it sounds like that's still to be revealed. Yes, yeah, sorry, I was on mute. Uh, and so, um, Sarah, you you then sort of mentioned based on that that um, you were thinking a lot about summoning charms, and you were noticing some connections between the spell that Harry has mastered, Akio, and even used in the first task, and and what the dark mark does, how it summons um, the the Death Eaters directly to Voldemort. And yeah, then we had to I get mean started. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Then we actually the decide to press record. Um, I think it goes even like all the way back to um, the burrow when um, I'm pretty sure Mrs. Weasley uses the summoning charm to like get all of the um, jokes and uh, you know not so sweet sweets from uh, Fred and George's pockets, and it's a charm that to my knowledge we haven't seen before um, up until book four, but um, it seems like she drops these Easter eggs, right, for us that they only mean something um, after the fact. And uh, if I think about what does that charm do, it, it, it summons something to you. And um, it does seem what the, the dark mark does. Um, it, it summons people though. But, you know, from something we've talked about in the past, like Voldemort doesn't view his followers as people. He views them as objects to collect. So um, I just, I think that that's an interesting paradox, right? That like, um, that something can be um, summoned for good use and summoned for evil use, right? That, that kind of plays into like what I think is a really common theme in the book that, um, uh, morality is about choice and how you use magic or how you use a wand or how you use a broom. Um, uh, that, that there's very little that on its own is, um, you know, purely evil or purely good. Right. Um, well, on that note, sort of obliquely related on the source of evil, which has been part of the thing we've been thinking about and what you bring to you and what you, you know, what you summon to yourself is um, where we finally have revealed sort of why Cornelius Fudge um, became Minister of Magic rather than Barty Crouch. And 
it, it was a family issue. It was an issue within his family um, that mm-hmm. people sprung up underneath his nose and he was unable to see it. He was so blind to it. So uh, sort of self-righteous and I guess, I suppose that also connects to the theme of blindness uh, which we will later see uh, sort of willful blindness. But to what extent um, because we turn a blind eye to the flaws in ourselves or in our own sort of family units, uh, that becomes the source of evil. And I, I would connect that also to what we start to learn about Tom Riddle and uh, Voldemort, mm. his, his origins um, as, you know, an, uh, an orphan who was, uh, I suppose, in his eyes, mistreated, but we'll, we'll have to see. We'll have to see. The, the summoning thing, to go back to that a little bit, like one of the traditional ideas of magic was that it, uh, it operates through spirits, which uh, the magician or the wizard or which um, summons and uh, like, you know, bids them do things. And so the magic is really the, um, the spirit doing things, but under the, uh, the control of the witch or wizard. Right. So in a way, like you could say that all magic is a kind of summoning um, is a kind of a, a use of language to affect some change through a, mm-hmm. like, you know, spiritual agent. Um, and, you know, that's sort of like what a word is, I guess, is like a kind of spiritual agent, you know, like you, you hurl words at someone or you hold back your your words if you, if you're trying to you know, be polite or something, you know, so there's, there's something kind of interesting about the relationship between magic and words that that makes me think of too. And, um, Mm. you know, like the dark mark is something you can just like, you can just show it to somebody. Um, You can just see it. It's inscribed on your body. Like it's not, it's not a spell the same way. Um, But then to like make it um, appear in the sky for everyone to see, you do have to, uh, you know, use a wand and, and say whatever the magic word is that, that makes it appear. Um, I forget, but we heard it, right? We heard it back in the beginning of the book, I think. Um, so there's, there's something weird going on there. There's something, um, I think, about the, uh, the bubblehead charm, even like why it is that they can't find the bubblehead charm in any book you know, and yet uh, two of the four champions know about it, use it apparently without any problems. Um, They're sort of like, they're always sort of like looking up more spells as if they're things that are just going to be in books. I think that might be, you know, if Hermione's got a weakness, it's that she's, she's overly sort of emphasizing certain kinds of magic over others that might be more um, incarnate. And we do see uh, a great, oh, yeah. yeah. Go on, I was just going to say that's a great, I, I was just going to say that that's a great word, right? Um, and I don't know that just because I think we brought it up before, maybe I brought it up around Christmas time, but like the fourth book is about things like becoming in motion, right? Where like maybe the, the words or the books or the lessons don't necessarily cover everything that you need to know. Um, and, and it's interesting that like you can learn things by looking as opposed to by reading or listening as is the case with the, the pensive. I don't serve the pensive. And so let's talk about the pensive and what that pensive is and what it reveals. Wes, you said you were interested in it too. Could you, could you walk us through that a little bit and what was interesting about the pensive? What about it was embodied too, if, if that theme applies at all to it? What, yeah, what yeah, did well, you think of it? The, the first thing that I would note about it is how Harry um, sort of sees it glowing, you know, in the cabinet there. Uh, and it's kind of resembles at first the Goblet of Fire, I thought. It's, you know, a, a stone ah. bowl that's got some creepy, um, you know, lambent kind of light coming from it. And, um, and Harry, 
you know, sure enough, his curiosity overpowers him, uh, not knowing at all what this thing is. He's drawn into it, much as his name is drawn into the Goblet of Fire somehow and, and pops out, and then he's, you know, pulled into this whole adventure. But, like, the the idea, I guess, that you could um, sort of represent memories in that way uh, also seems really similar to the dream idea, but um, but it's sort of under conscious control or, or sort of semi-conscious control, it seems like. It's a, it's a lucid dreaming that Dumbledore does to like find patterns in his thoughts that he otherwise wouldn't be able to see because he's got too much going on up there. And uh, I like the little note that like Harry has never felt that way. <laughs> he's never had too many thoughts, too many memories. Um, <laughs> It's a really, it's a really beautiful like interaction of um, sort of Harry getting to observe how Dumbledore learns things, also. And so, if you were to look for a symbolic correlate of what, say, a person incarnating that sort of spirit in our world would be, would you say that that is like reading Dumbledore's journal or record of events? by being able to take his perspective in that moment. Uh, Although it is Mm. not quite his perspective. He has framed the event, but you get your own. Is it like reading something of value from the past, like his journal? Yeah, I'm just wondering. I mean, I think it even makes that connection to the uh, Tom Riddle's diary that Harry's like, oh shit, uh, I've been Mm. in one of these before, you know? Yes, yes. He he should have learned his lesson long ago or whatever it says. Yeah, long ago he had learned the lesson about just jumping into these things, but here he goes again. Well, let's uh, let's talk some about what it is we learn. We see, was it two or three trials here? Um, we see Karkaroff. Um, what, who else? Bagman. We see? we see Bagman. That's a big surprise to us. That's again, uh, that's uh, a theme we're going to get into at some point uh, in the next couple of podcasts here are the layers that are underlying this entire um, story that only come together later and, you, and help you to see just how substantial the situations are and how superficial your perspective was as, as Harry. But yeah, Bagman, Karkaroff, and um, an interesting divergence from the movie. This is in the movie where uh, Karkaroff, um, he accuses, he accuses Barty Crouch's son and he's taken away. Um, but here he just, it is Barty Crouch with three other colluders who's brought forth for the awful, awful crime. And I think this is when we learn about this of, or yeah, of driving Neville's parents crazy through the Crucio curse. Is that right? I I think that is right. I think in the movie it's insinuated much earlier. Um, though I'd have to go back into the book and, and look, but remember when Moody does the three um, unforgivable curses on like day one? In the yes. movie, the, the way the the shot is framed it's implied that neville has a really hard time watching the cruciatus curse and he even admits it um at some point uh maybe it's in the fifth book or the fifth movie or something like that but i think in this book to my knowledge it's the first time we've learned that his parents were aurors and that they were really popular I think that's where, you know, um, to, for Wes's like continuing appreciation of what of Neville, um, this is where you start to see, I think, like some really emerging parallels that lay the ground nicely for what we learn at the end of the fifth book. That like Harry and Neville are not so not as different as maybe um, like a yearbook would indicate, you know. Um, they had popular parents who were targeted by Voldemort and or Voldemort's cronies. Um, and, you know, I, I think the part where Dumbledore says that they don't recognize him and Harry sat there horror struck. He had never known, never in four years bothered to find out, you know, just like, um, 
in this entire in this entire scene, he's learning things that um, he would otherwise never have bothered to find out. Like what a difference it makes to to literally stand in the in the shoes or in the mind or in the like the clothing of another character. Like um and like what what does that give you? I mean that's a that's a kind of knowledge that you can't get in a book. That is knowledge that that I think runs super deep. Even if you are reading a book and you're attempting to empathize with a character, that's not the work of always the mind alone, you know? And that that again back to that layers theme. Wow, to know that he's dealing with that at all those times and just indicating the diversity of sorts of, of varieties of lives that we all have you know we don't live according to type we we all live very different lives from each other but Wes is that part of what you like so much about Neville you've you've you have admitted that sort of constant um I don't know if it's admiration or at, at least affection for him thinking he's the best really I think are, are your words or at least in paraphrase um but is it because of his story or is it because of his personality and how he is or is this part of your appreciation of him? Oh yeah, it's a big part of it. Um the the parallel with Harry Potter is I think really like I really like to think about Neville as being sort of like the uh the the unwritten story that's sort of coursing through all of these books. Um you know, so much of what makes these books interesting is the way that things are uh as you say like she drops little little hints, little easter eggs here and there. And then only in hindsight do you see how uh, how much has been going on in the in the background or you know in the past the the scar right that you know makes Harry Potter who he is um, is the representation of this thing that happened in the past that the entire series is him is leading up to him like understanding you know and and coming to terms with and and in a way like that's what Neville is too he's this this kid who um, as we'll find out, is born on the same birthday, is, uh, has the same you know, potential to have been uh, the boy who lived, um, has had a completely, apparently, like, normal, as far as wizarding lives go, normal life, um, aside from this, you know, very big reveal that we're going to get here, that his parents are, uh, are in, a, in, a, in a hospital and um, are invalid, you know, and he's been raised by his grandmother. So he's got this uh, this dynamic going on where he's you know completely normal and even like bumbling to an extent, but also like completely amazing, you know, sort of like a, a Sam Gamgee kind of character. And so back to the family, I have a question for you, uh, Sarah. Based on that, it seems as if what we learn with the Barty Crouch part of the Pinsy, where the Barty Crouch Jr. is brought forward, and it's it's really pathetic. And I listened to this on the Audible, and him screaming is you know. And hearing his mother like burst into tears is a terrible moment. Um, but again, we see Voldemort, orphan, evil, uh, Barty Crouch, you know, father career driven, possibly, you know, sort of under subtext that he ignored him, evil generated there. And then on the other side, Neville and Harry, seemingly good, even though uh, also sort of orphans or outcasts due to the family. And mm -hmm. I wonder if that also ties to your idea of uh, sort of choice and free will that all these people have been dealt terrible cards, but still two of the people transcend their situation where two of them sort of uh, degenerate to it um, mm -hmm. instead. And that that's, that's their choice. That's frankly their choice. They can lower to their level or they can climb out of it. Well, and I, I think it, there isn't just one choice right at every right. at every there are choices and um i think there are there are predispositions right but um i think it's particularly interesting and you're right the audio version of of the of barty crouch jr's trial is hard and i think yeah. it's actually kind of cool to listen to it more than read it because because Harry is like a little upset by it, right? You know, is it possible that he it's wasn't upsetting. involved? And and uh, you know, it's again, if you if you 
were to read something like a case file, uh, if like if he were to flip through a journal, I just think sometimes the visual is so much more powerful. And and I would say that maybe the, even the audio or audible, like Harry hears. We you know in the audio uh, audio book we hear as well. And um, I, I think particularly with that with that scene, what is hard for me to stomach is um, like, I think we're all teachers. We've all seen um, a variety of families and kids and, and parents and, and that like choice matters. So does setting, like context matters as well. Like, of course the rose rise, can rise from concrete, right? Like long live Tupac, but um, the fact that the rose is, planted among concrete makes it statistically less likely or or just harder to 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 rise right like a part of me thinks that like capitulating to the thing that's easy or the 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 thing that's that's you know so-called evil I feel like that's the easier route I mean maybe that's just maybe I'm just biased or something like that but neither Harry nor Neville seem to have it easy easy you know um well i'm gonna ask I, about I, I mean, that again yeah. I, 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 that might be an unfair characterization to be honest let's, but let's, um, let's think about it evil is worth consideration and wes what do you think of evil do you agree with sarah that that there is something that if evil is luring and it has to allure you where it like through the gate of ivory as penelope speaks of in the odyssey um and good is the gate of horn or the hard way do you agree with that characterization that good is hard or takes skill takes aim whereas evil um you know can probably be done in a sophisticated way but is is the easier path in some way um i mean i think there's a real interesting take on that and i know there's a classical reference to this too but i couldn't remember what it was where you have the the father who is in a position of authority and his uh, child is accused and um, and he feels that he has to be just as harsh on his child as he is on just any other criminal who's brought before him, right? Um, it reminds, and, uh, reminds me of Antigone. Sorry to interrupt, but... Yeah, it's like an I opposite... That's, that's, yeah, it's an opposite... Um, I, is it Fido? It's not, or it might be... It's one of the early dialogues of Socrates that has a kid trying to prosecute his father for justice, um, mm. a son trying mm. to prosecute his father uh, rather than father's son. But, but that is, yeah, that Antigone bit does, does ring true with me too, Sarah. Um, there, I can think of two instances where Kings did that. Well, Agamemnon sacrifices his own daughter, Iphigenia to take, to make up for uh, missing a sacrifice to Artemis or hurting one of her stags. And also Idomeneus, one of the captains of the Achaeans, promises Poseidon to sacrifice the first thing he sees upon getting home. And his son comes to greet him first and he sacrifices him. Dante uses that as an example of when to break a promise, by the way. <laughs> but I don't, I don't know if any of those are quite right, actually, you know. Well, yeah, I think it, I mean, uh, anyway, the, the idea here is like the, the easy thing to do um, might be in that case to be, you know, partial, um, to be uh, kind to one's kin, but he emphatically does not um, let his, his son off here, right? Crouch is not even going to give his son a chance to, uh, just to tell his side of the story, basically, right? So, so I, I don't know that, and and that does seem to be the wrong, the wrong choice. Um, but mm. I don't know. Like we, we have yeah. to, yeah, we have to sort of find some some way to talk about um, what good and evil are. I think before deciding which one is easier or harder, probably. You know, that's interesting too because I know. That somebody we were listening to a lot last year, Dr. Jordan Peterson mentions that in a, there was a, a debate that happened 
um, a presidential debate. I can't remember whether it was 80, 84, 88. It was around that time. And one of the candidates, it might've been Dukakis, I'm not sure, was asked uh, whether, I believe he had pardoned a rapist or a a famous rapist had been pardoned. And uh, he was asked a really hard hitting question, which was, you know, if that happened to your wife, what would you do? And he gave a very sort of like uh, white collar answer, like, you know, I would let the law do what it was supposed to. And he lost favor. And sort of Peterson's analysis of that was he didn't give a human enough response that he gave too cerebral and political a response rather than, you know, the appropriately visceral and just one. I see that also here in Crouch, that it says when you let the system be more important than your flesh and blood, that you're, you're starting to become sort of fascist, that you, you are removed from proper judgment and reality, that you are not fit for highest office. Well, it just, I mean, it physically deranges him, right? Because it, it does, you know, take his son away, then his, his wife dies, um, kind of pines away, and it, it really breaks him, it seems like. So the, the kind of natural consequences there do seem to indicate that he, he messed up. Um, yeah. And what do you think it means for the fact that he, oh, sorry, go on, Sarah, yes. I was just, I was just going to say that if he wasn't originally involved, in the torture, um, then it really does seem that his father's treatment um, had a had an enormous negative consequence, right? Um, like if he was involved and his father, do you know? I, I do you know? You know what I'm talking about? Um, is that so? Is that like, is that a possibility? That's something I was wondering. So, so the situation like, for the yeah, because like yeah, I think I thought I think Harry's question is extremely important, and the fact that Dumbledore says like I don't, I don't think I don't think Dumbledore has an answer. Dumbledore shook his head. As to that, I have no idea. That's right. Yes. Uh, but like, <clears throat> um, I, I I just I think if if his son was involved and he was just a really good liar um and and he he did the you know the thing that probably hurts on a human level but the thing that he thought was either right or politically expedient um and i do think that those two things that matters the distinction like within himself about why he made the decision to you know send his son to azkaban if did he think it was going to win in votes or did he think it was you know, this up, I'm upholding the law and, you know, this is a really serious crime. Um, yes, he's my son. I'm going to go home and cry about this, but, you know, I, I can't let this slide. Like morally, right? Um, but if if the son wasn't involved, then like, then I, the, I think that that is a really important part of the question of like, where does evil come from? Because if the son wasn't involved, then, then this wasn't like, then, then, then his, his choice to get involved <laughs> later is, is what vengeance? Is it, uh, um, you know, comeuppance for your, you know, dear old dad and the world as a consequence? Did you get converted in prison? I mean, um, and I think that that's, that's an important question. I, I know that we get a lot of, testimony later on um uh from the character but um you know I, th- I think that that's an important part of the conversation at least at the moment i mean that would be an apex level tragedy um false accusation by your trusted father um but wes what do you think of that do you did you see did you make that connection as well that perhaps the younger son could be innocent he he does speak scream in a very harrowing and pitiful way on the audible book i i could see where that opinion might come from from pity at the very least yeah yeah and well i mean i I think we're kind of given a lot from Sirius here when they go and talk to him uh outside the turnstile or the you know the last style you know and they go up the mountain to the rocky cave and he's telling them about what things were like back then and how scared everyone was and how Crouch was um, taking 
really, really drastic measures, uh, which was at the time popular, um, but in hindsight, you know, and especially from Sirius's point of view, was was messed up, you know, because Sirius was um, wrongly accused and summarily tossed into Azkaban for life, right? So this kind of draconian um, response to what is admittedly a terrible situation is going to breed more um, acrimony, bitterness yes. uh, down the line, like regardless of, of what actually mm-hmm. happened. And, and that, mm-hmm. that seems to be sort of like Dumbledore's, like the other extreme of that, right? Like Dumbledore always uh, seems to forgive and seems to trust and and that also well you know doesn't always work out that's so interesting it does seem like the evil here does need stirring up and that dumbledore like zeus at the end of the odyssey sues for peace you know zeus throws that thunderbolt and says enough between the families of the suitors and odysseus uh spoiler alert for those of you reading the odyssey um and <laughs> and um but um yeah but that evil comes in that particular sort of form and a uh, way that um, it's almost because of those draconian measures, because of the cruelty with which, with because of the fire meeting fire, more fire is produced. Uh, seems to be the idea that ire produces additional ire, and that uh, you you don't want to win the battle. I sound like a coach here, but you want to win the war. Um, hmm. I do think that this sort of plays into like a larger political claim of of in times of crisis what is the proper response versus what is the likely response um i think we talked maybe a a long time ago about the ways in which maybe like the makeup of the school its placement its some of its dynamics are um a nice reflection of stuff in of kind of like britain at the early 19, uh, 1990s, right? Um, an emerging multicultural Britain. Um, in, in times of, of trial and crisis, there's, ton, there's so many examples, even just from the 20th century, of um, you know, genuine terror yielding um, a draconian response um, and having the consequences of that be like not good. Um, and People don't feel any safer. Um, I mean, you and I, all of us, we've, this has been the last, God, what is, this has been the last 18 years of our lives. Like we've lived in a, in a world that has been in a country that's been like gripped by panic off and on. Um, and some of that panic is well-founded and some of that is doped um, for profit or for attention. And um, like, when we were in high school, this, that was happening too, you know, like all kinds of, yeah, sure. Like slash civil liberties, like, you know, eliminate certain elements of the justice system if it makes us feel safer. Right. And I think, um, that's the thing. I think when we were reading that section about fear and how like, not, not that section, it was like at the Quidditch world cup where we were talking about like, does fear divide people or does it unite people? Like, I think it really unites people, but in like a really disgusting way, right? Like it makes people just united in their desire for um, a, 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 an immediate solve, like an immediate fix or a distraction, you know, like, oh, we're not going to talk about it anymore. Um, but we're going to blame this one group of people maybe the mudbloods because, or I, I don't know. Does it, I don't know if I'm making any sense, but. Um. You, you are. And speaking of disgusting and stirring things up, uh, I wondered to what extent, um, Wes, you think that Rita Skeeter and sort of how she is a representative of journalism itself, as she's the only journalist that is featured ever in, um, mm. in this, uh, this series and how, how it will actually turn out that um, most people get their news from her, including Molly um, Weasley, who will be a little cold towards Hermione after an article by Rita Skeeter, but also even Cornelius Fudge, the Minister of Magic. And to what extent this sort of anger-mongering that Rita Skeeter is good at doing or mudslinging 
produces additional mud, like Sarah was saying, in the world, and that people start to sort of convene, you know, to to sort of you know stone people's reputation, and that there there can be sort of a or there's a feedback loop between sort of uh, the negative things done at the political level as well as as at the journalistic level in this magical world like a calcifying of the politicians at the same time that the journalists work to stoke the anger of the people. She, Rita Skeeter's in, in the background here, and, um, and it's her readers who sort of, you know, send Hermione all the nasty letters with uh, really, um, really despicable uh, sentiments and, um, you know, messages and things. And I think that her desire to to dig into people's stories is an interesting kind of perversion of the the desire to find out the truth, right? Which is like sort of behind a lot of the uh, the political issue that we're seeing there, where where Crouch is not apparently too concerned with finding out exactly what happened, but mostly with with punishment and with um, security and and all that sort of thing, and that that dynamic um, again just makes it seem really complicated. It's not as simple as saying like, okay, so you know we really need to find out the truth of what's going on because, as we see with Rita Skeeter, you can find out the truth and still misuse it, uh, you know, for for whatever reason, and you can you can also just um, you can't just simply say like Dumbledore, that you have to forgive everybody all the time, you know, um, uh, it's not gonna be, it's not gonna be safe. Um, it's, it sort of is not sustainable and not everyone's Dumbledore, right? So it's not gonna work uh, quite that simple. I, I guess, you know, even um, with uh, Harry and Ron, we see a little bit of friction here. So, you know, maybe, maybe often I, I like to think about like friendship or, or that sort of thing as, as the, as the end of of an ethic, um, but even here we see like Harry has kind of let Ron down um, by by not telling him that all those uh, galleons uh, disappeared. Remember, like the gold that Ron paid him back with ended up being leprechaun gold, mm, right? So like, yeah. if if Harry had noticed that, then he still would have had the dilemma: like, do I tell Ron or not? Like, how how do I be a friend here? And he it just totally his mind. And as he says, like, it's understandable. So, so it just seems to be like in human affairs, no one answer. Um, and so you sort of set up these institutions that, that allow for processes of sort of like balancing between laws or rules or mores or whatever, and like the particular cases. And so then when those institutions start to break down, then you're in real trouble and you just sort of like mop up the consequences for generations. <laughs> wow, well, that's depressing. Well, so where are we exactly? Is is that what's happening in this magical world at this moment, Wes? Are we in the are we in the midst of institutions that have agglomerated over a long time, breaking down and leaving people in a state of disarray? And why would it be people's first response then to turn from the truth or to turn to blame mongering or to punishing or pretending to be safe rather than focusing on a solution? I, I'm not sure about the breakdown of, of all of the institutions because I still think Hogwarts is doing pretty darn good um, at this point at least. But um, clearly people outside of it are trying to take jabs at it, right? Like Rita Skeeter um the uh, the mentors coming in in the previous book we saw was not so good and you know they almost had a few students die the one before that so so maybe there's sort of some cracks there but but overall it seems like the institution is still really doing its job which is as we said sort of teaching kids the the aim beyond the immediate aims of following rules right but to like really deeply learn and grow and and that seems to still be the most powerful thing and and that'll that'll sort of be borne out in the book. So I don't mean it to be super depressing. What I would say too, though, is that I think the indication is that there there is this other spiritual or or at least magical aspect to take into account, which can't be really fully contained even within a magical institution like Hogwarts or the Ministry. 
And that's like, I think, brought out pretty strongly by the dream. Um, and then it's reflected in, in the pencil. Mm. There's this dynamic of this thing that is uncontrollable that breaks through and like reaches you and calls to you the way that Harry's dream does. And then you have to sort of contain that and sift it in the pensive um, in the next chapter. And, and so there's always that sort of balance back and forth as well between things that are, that are sub, subconscious, unconscious, you know, creative, like the dream, which is terrifying, but, you know, contains truth. And then the pensive, which is where we sort of, you sort of go through and, and organize and find the pattern between between what you've you've seen. And you've just made that, that yeah, go on, Sarah. I was just gonna say I think that's that's a great distillation of things. I didn't mean that you were being depressing. I thought I mean the more you describe what's going on in the secondary world, the more I think that it's it's merely a mirror of that's what I that's why I thought it was depressing. I was like, well that's where we are, um, not necessarily where they are, but um, well, yeah, precisely. I guess, yeah, I think the yeah. other thing that, that I think is sort of a chink in the Hogwarts armor, though, is that there are so many people on the outside kind of lobbing grenades at Hogwarts, like, uh, like the Malfoy, this whole, this whole, um, th that there is a kind of board, right, that there's a, like, this oversight committee that can, um, you know, uh, uh, find a way to eliminate teachers or um you know that has a way it has pull right like that to me is a little bit of a chink in the in the armor that like it's not i don't know maybe that's simply a worldly imperfection that that all no, but that, are like that, that but. but that's interesting because again that's a back to the layers that albus dumbledore is to some extent limited here he has influence over hogwarts which t for us has been essentially the limit of the magical world but that there is an outside world and that his power is limited that he there is even a board of governors run by lucius malfoy who works at the That's ministry right. of magic which also technically uh allows dumbledore to do what it is he does which is interesting because if dumbledore is sort of a figure of god or the spirit of truth in the world and that's what education is about it is what is precisely scary is when you know some a motivated political player changes the purpose of education to you know causing uniformity of individuals or to have a certain plan rather than developing you know seekers after truth and also people informed by truth uh, that seems to be when you start stop wanting free people who can think and start wanting non-thinking people who believe sort of the party line and that that's that encroachment is sort of touching here the other yeah, there's like there's like no go you go ahead. no you oh no i was just gonna say that there's like there's a creep right like there's a there's a a slow there's like I don't know if you guys have seen Stranger Things, but yes, uh, there's like there's the upside there's the uh, what's it called the upside down. That's um, right. And the the monster is there like on the in the background, like only if you look at it or look at it a certain way, right? Um, and there are a lot of people who want to pretend like the monster isn't there. Look over here, everything is everything That's is right. awesome. Um, and, that would never happen um, here. Yeah, and let me sell you some stuff that is going to make you feel better about the fact that you're looking over here and not looking over there because there's nothing to see here, right? Um, and we don't talk about that, and we have language, an entire set of words that we don't use. Um, and, uh, you know, I think the fact that there is kind of this, like, for for the first few books, right, there's, there's the... Um, the evil is, uh, it, it intervenes in Hogwarts, right? It like, it's, it's not built into kind of, um, it's not built in. It's, it's, uh, I, don't, I don't know if I'm expressing myself correctly, but like it, it comes and uh, they deal with it and then it somehow is banished or it leaves or it flies away or it, um, you know, is cast aside. And there's something different here that like seems like the, the evil creep is maybe making its way in other nooks and crannies um, 
Um, and it's starting to take different forms, right? It looks, it's like these nasty letters that the, these people send to Hermione, or it looks like a dream that you can't control that like intervenes on your, in your class, or it looks kind of like, like a, a sinking feeling in your gut that what if I've looked at the entire world from a wrong perspective? What if I assume that the court system always punished uh, people properly? And, you know, I know that they didn't, but, you know, I, like that kind of, dis those discoveries are discomforting because they're internal and they're like easy, easy to overlook and they're more insidious. Um, but like, I think that's where stuff lurks. Right? And it, it really hits you at home because, you know, it's your friend whose parents got tortured until they went crazy. And it's, you know, everybody's, everybody who's carrying something terrible, you know, it's Harry's parents who were murdered when he almost got murdered too. Just like when you see him, those associations are brought up and that, and that evil like if good is represented by fox the phoenix and in this next book the order of the phoenix it seems as if evil is equally capable of being reborn through this image of the dark mark in the sky this image of you know a skull that what's perennial death and the things which serve it and it it's i think that's also part of the summoning theme again that evil like good always reconstitutes itself. And I think what we're noticing here is that it reconstitutes itself through the everyday little evil actions that we commit and through like the small betrayals that, that we, we uh, enact against each other. The things that maybe we write off as being, you know, just relational or personal and, you know, not at a grand political scale, not worth being written about in the news, but it's like, it's not written about in the news. It's written about in books like Harry Potter or like the Bible. Like it's written about like your moral decisions, the, the actions between you and your brother, that's like biblical level. It's higher than the political. And I think that's something we're starting to get to and something that Percy was in danger of um, forgetting and misrepresenting. And I think he's been sort of on the bubble too in the background being such a fan of Crouch and being so oblivious to what was going on this mm. whole time. Uh, that makes me remember that um, Dumbledore, one of, among the many things that make him different is that he reads the Muggle newspapers. Um, yes, yeah. So you hear about that, uh, that, that other side of journalism i suppose that um yeah things that might not seem important to the other um uh, wizarding community uh dumbledore is, is cognizant of so all right so this to end this week i i thought instead of asking for a spell or or a drink or something like that i would ask a theophilus lovegood level question here and um, sort of a narrative gotcha question. And this is one I sent you all via text. But <laughs> if you become a wizard in this world and you go to Hogwarts, say in Britain, are you allowed to return to the muggle world and use your powers in order to benefit yourself? A, are you allowed to return to the muggle world and ever use your powers? B, are you allowed to return to the muggle world, but you have to, you know, sort of like, take the red pill, you can't use your powers or tell anybody about it anymore sort of situation. Um, because it sort of seems like Hermione or like anybody who's muggle-born who, who becomes, you know, a wizard has to give up everybody in their life then from before they were 11, you know, 12 years old. And that that's, that, that's you know, I wouldn't call it kidnapping so much as, or abduction so much as... Uh, <laughs> So much as that's pretty rough, you know, I mean, it's kind of, it's very much like what the Jedis have to do from an earlier age, I suppose, and yet would be less rough mm -hmm. precisely because of that in the Star Wars world. But what did y'all think about that? Like, is that the subtext there? Like Hermione can't go back and be a dentist? I, I know as kids, we would think, why would she want to? She knows magic. But there are plenty of reasons why you might want to go back to that world. Maybe. Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a very big question for me what what the relationship looks like between the muggle world and the magical world 
with respect to people who do move between them, right? Because because going back to the question about like truth, you know, somewhere along the line, you're deceiving people and probably people that you care about, uh, you know, whether it's your family or, you know, at some extent, your family knows what you're doing. Like Hermione's parents seem to be okay with it, but but they've got to keep it secret from, you know, some more distant relative or from their neighbors or, you know, so there's like this kind of weird um, inside versus outside thing that gets set up there. And if Hermione or somebody like that wanted to go back and just be a normal uh, person again, I, I assume that the ministry would, you know, keep a close watch on them or something like that to, to make sure that they were not letting the cat out of the bag. Well, I mean, Alex, are you asking us like, what is the right answer or in, <laughs> in our world, what would it be if we could pick one? I didn't really differentiate it. Uh, I should have, but uh, I, what do you think is actually the case? Like, and like, then of course, comment that, on that. Yes. I think there are rules. I mean, certainly there are in the uh, uh, Fantastic Beasts movie series, there are rules about not, it's, it's like the secrecy act. I forget what it's called exactly, but I'd have to go back and look it up. I'll do that at some point. We'll have to research this. But yeah, that there's like there is an international magical law on like that 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 demanded secrecy, which is why they kept doing like memory charms on the on the muggles that they were uh, helping or using to reacquire all the animals. Um, But uh, like that that muggles could not know, and yet my sense is that that law has been. Um, rescinded because both like in the United States and in, and in England because there are a variety of characters whose one of their parents is a muggle and one of their parents is magic and I'm, I'm thinking I'm, I know Seamus is um, uh, half shall we say um, and I think he does maybe this is just in the movie but um, I think it's also in the book that there's sort of like, yeah, it was kind of a shock when he found out um, that uh, maybe people keep it secret from the muggle world. Maybe there's this assumption um, that like they'll be treated like they're a freak, you know, like. Um, and that and, is actually a big reveal, or, right? Because part of Tom Riddle's yeah. inception is because of his mom being a witch who falls in love with a muggle and uses a love potion on him. It's an illicit use of right. magic against a muggle. It's sort of like a, a, a it's a magical rape, essentially. Is and what they, yeah, and they have, they have like the, um, the laws at the Quidditch World Cup, like they had to keep the muggles from knowing that they were there, but there were also laws against using magic on the muggles um, in, in a way that was like manipulative or designed for entertainment. There weren't, like they were allowed to, you know, do memory charms on muggles, right? That That's doing magic on a muggle, but it's not the same as like levitating a muggle, right? Um, like yeah, for pleasure. I, I guess, so those, yeah. those two things seem to be different. I think um, I my guess is, and this is a total guess, I have no reason to be saying it other than just as a sense, that like if you if Hermione wanted to go back and be a dentist, they would have to do some kind of memory eraser of some kind. But because without that, like how do you unlearn what you've learned? You know what I mean? Um, yeah, and I then I, I don't. You don't. I, I guess it, that's that's what I. You would need like a really powerful. What's his name? Um, oh, their second be, defense. Gil- Gilderoy Gilderoy Lockhart memory charm charm right. Yeah, it's funny, like the MIB mind eraser, that Professor X wiping people's minds. And it's interesting what draws Tommy Lee Jones back eventually is like he just feels like he's still something different. To what extent somebody would still have that knowledge embodied is interesting to me too. Like they would feel forever a longing for something they had once known, which would be interesting. But Mm. okay, this is the worst way to ask this question, but I just want to include it. Well- I, I do want to answer this question, but I also want to ask y'all and say, I did not remember 
just how many muggles Voldemort was known to have killed and that that is actually what he mostly mm. did that he uh that he killed what was it scores and scores what was the language Sirius used it was it was there were multiple mass killings that he committed and I did not remember that he had that sort of scale of of killing and it made me just wonder about the time in which his killings were happening and I believe that was the 80s and I just wondered whether y'all made a connection between that and any sort of like world events like a place where a political or fascist order a reign of fear had taken hold that internally repressed its own people like whether that was something that was happening in the Soviet Union at that time um, because I just I hadn't thought about the scale of his killings being anything more than, you know, like a few wizards and witches, but apparently it was, it was, a, it was tons, like thousands of muggles. Mm. And uh, I just, I didn't remember when first going through these books, focusing on that detail or even noticing it, that his, his reign of terror, I mean, people were afraid for, for damn good reason. stand on the lightest possible note yeah i don't know what to uh compare it to exactly because i don't know much uh history that is that time period um but he's associated with albania isn't it for some reason that's where people disappear when they are um uh caught by voldemort yes uh, bertha jorkins so maybe it's sort of like yeah that general eastern europe um sort of uh, in the shadow of the, the the decaying Soviet Union, something like that. There lies Mordor in the east. And, <laughs> well, well, yes. So, yeah, Sarah, I remember you noting that as well. So did you, did you have a final thought about just the scale of Voldemort's killings? Were you surprised by that? Is that something you remember? Do you think it was like tens of thousands? Do you think it was millions? Do you think it was hundreds? What do you think that that language meant? And I, I can find exactly which quote I'm looking for, but I do believe it was Sirius speaking at that time about uh, to to Harry. Yeah, I, I do remember that. Um, uh, he is one of the. I mean, the first thing we see him do in this book is kill a muggle, right? Um, with that Frank Bryce, that gardener. Right. Um, or at least or order that he be killed. Um, and just in, in our conversation just now about like the, the really tenuous kind of fine line that it seems like the magic world walks alongside the muggle world, right? Like we know that there's a relationship between Cornelius Fudge um, and the prime minister of England. We know that there's, uh, uh, there are some people who like uh, dress better um uh or like who who imitate the dress of muggles better than others they they seem to want to blend in um they seem to want to hide i don't i don't know if it's just like culturally um the british magic community is afraid of the way they'd be treated if um the wider british world knew about them um, maybe that's based on experience but it makes me think of like um the x-men uh, where I think it's the villain Magneto doesn't does he want all of the X-Men to like emerge as sort of like the powerful figures in their world. Um, and like uh, there were um, there's one X-Men movie where there's a law being passed that would like outlaw or make illegal the mutant race. And so um, like Professor X is stuck between Magneto, who wants to basically have the mutants dominate. He wants to flip the power dynamic, but not affect the fact that there is a power dynamic. He wants the oppressed to become the oppressor, as opposed to do away with oppression altogether. And it seems kind of like the the uh, impulse to... Um, like use magic on the helpless. Um, I, I think that that, like, one of Voldemort's greatest weaknesses, I think, in the entire series, from my perspective, is that he he generally has 
like in oddly an enormous amount of fears, right? There's like some of the psychological stuff, like the fear of death. So he goes to these great lengths to, to eliminate that possibility. But I think one of the fears is, is like a deep sense of fearing of being dominated. So at, you know, that's what bullies do is it bullies behave out of fear and they, they do everything they can to show the world how powerful they are, not by, not by um, going after people who they actually perceive as a threat, but by going after people who are weaker. And I think the muggles represent those, these people who they're not, they're not, it's not a fair fight even before the fight begins. Right. And that's to me what I think is important about it is that it's an example of the biggest of the bullies expressing the biggest of fears by going after the weakest of people. Like, um, I think that the, and I think, I think that that's an, an important, an important piece of it. Um, I, I, I don't know what else to say about that, but. Well, I, th I think we had a lot of good stuff to say today. And so, well, how far would y'all like to read for next time? Now that I, I have this wonderful audible feature, which I, I can't say enough good things about. I really love it, especially, uh, especially since I drive so much every day. Um, but, uh, how far would y'all like to read for next time? I think we should finish the book. Let's do it. I'm in. Awesome. All right. Well, we have a lot to talk about for next time and uh, I'm looking forward to being able to keep up with y'all better. I've been, I've been so slow to read, but again, I've been refreshed and renewed. It's like I've uh, baptized myself in my own pin sieve. Uh, and, oh man, I can't believe we didn't make that connection to baptism. We didn't, we didn't talk about the baptismal font. Oh man. Well, I guess we always got to, now we've uh, strung the hook for next time. And uh, we got plenty more where that came from. <laughs> well, y'all have a good week. So much religious uh, stuff. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I yeah. thought this was a pagan book. It's like, well, <laughs> you know, we'll see. We'll see. <laughs> All right. See you guys. Thanks. Take it easy. See ya. Take it easy.